Hi Soma, uh, this is the third in our community mixtape series. Uh, it's called The Comic Vision. Uh, last week we started talking about humour in the Christian life and in community and we asked why did Sarah and Abraham laugh and why should we? And we came up with the answer, because of God, because he's the God of surprise and refreshment. That's a good start. We looked at one example of humour in the scriptures. Today I want to expand on that a bit. French poet Charles Boudelaine said holy books never laugh to whatever nations they belong. In other words, the adherents of a religion don't tend to find their own scriptures funny. <laughs> Author Doris Donnelly says, fortunately, humour is peeking its fragile head through centuries of humourless Christianity. And a new lens is being fitted onto biblical interpretation that highlights a different way to read the text. So I want to look at the Bible through this new lens and allow the Bible to laugh. And Doris Donnelly says that if you're not looking for humour, you're unlikely to see it. So let's look at the scriptures through a fresh vision of looking at the uh, comic dimension and just paying attention to that and realise that the scriptures not only laugh, they give us an exuberant and transforming comic vision, which gives us a new perspective on the tragedy of life. And the Old and the New Testament literally brim with humour, but we've only got time for two examples today. We're going to look at Genesis 2 to 3, punny and funny, and Job 38 to 41, amazing and amusing. Alrighty, firstly, Genesis 2 to 3, the story of Adam and Eve, is punny and funny. Firstly, it's funny. Who hasn't smiled at the haste at which Adam and Eve clothed themselves with fig leaves? and try to hide from God in the, in the bushes, <laughs> which is a hopelessly inadequate strategy. Who hasn't smiled at how sad yet ludicrously human it is when the man blames the woman? The woman you gave me, she did it. And the woman blames the serpent. All in all, it's a comic scene. And secondly, it's punny. Uh, in this kind of humorous uh, atmosphere, the pun is at home. The punning of the Hebrew doesn't necessarily come through in the, in the English translation, but the punning helps it give this story a playful and, and light touch. What are puns? Puns are verbal resonances across word fields. I like that definition. Puns are jokes embedded in inventive wordplay. <laughs> puns are playing with words, essentially, <laughs> and you know verbal twists and rhymes and double meanings, etc. And there are five puns in Genesis 2 to 3. First, the man is called Adam because he was scraped and shaped from the Adama, the soil, 2 verse 7. The second pun is that God gives him the breath of life, uh, Nemat Hayim, which makes him a living being, Neshef Hayah, chapter 2 verse 7. And there's a sort of resonance and radiance, the words Shima and Shimi. <laughs> Uh, the third pun, God names the woman Isha, for she was taken out of Ish, man. And there's a lovely connection between the two expressed by the pun. The fourth pun, the man and his wife were both naked, Arumumum, and the serpent was more shrewd or sly, Arum, than any wild animal. Chapter 3, verse 1. How's that for subtle wordplay? The pun ironically connects their innocent, vulnerable nakedness with the serpents knowing, pulling the wool over their eyes. This kind of subtlety is, is more at home in a comedy than a tragedy. And there's a delightful cleverness 
happening here in the Genesis 2 to 3 story. It's playing around with words. Uh, the fifth pun is a kind of climax to the sequence of puns. The man names his wife Eve, which means life, Hava, because she will be the mother of all the living. Hey, chapter 3, verse 20. Hava, hey, life, living. Uh, again, the Hebrew rhymes. And this pun is the final note of the story. And this final note or joke reverberates with life. <laughs> Despite the terrible tragedy of what has just happened, the joke of her name is that God has just announced that they will die, and yet Adam names her life. So right in the face of death, we're told that Eve, her name is life, for she will be the mother of all the living. So there's this promise of life right at the end of this story. This is the last laugh of the garden story. It's the refreshing fish perspective, the surprise ending that we talked about last week. This is the essence of good humour, hope in the face of adversity. The essential comic feeling is felt life, the surging powers of life and hope where there is disaster, death and despair. So this pun about life is juxtaposed with the announcement of death. So in summary, the Garden of Eden story is a lot more playful and, and comic than we sometimes realise. There's wit, there's punning, there's uh, comic irony and there's a hopeful ending. It's a bit like Shakespeare, lots of dazzling wordplay, very gorgeous. And it's saying that this promise of life makes the fall of humanity a bittersweet comedy not a terrifying tragedy. That's the comic vision of Genesis 2 to 3. And I think Michelangelo's depiction of this is too brutal. Where is the note of hope in his art? I, th I think we've got to see the hope of this story at the end, even in the face of the announcement of death. And this comic vision is sustained right the way through the Bible the promise of life stays alive until the ultimate moment when God brings life out of death through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Which means that life for us who believe is a bittersweet comedy and not a terrifying tragedy. Wow. Well, secondly, Job, chapters 38 to 41, amazing and amusing. If Genesis 2 to 3 is punny and funny, then Job is amazing and amusing. In Job, we see the same playfulness as we saw in Genesis 2 and 3 and a further development of the comic vision. Job 38 to 41 is the most gorgeous speech that God ever gives in the Old Testament and it's comprised entirely of the most gorgeous questions that anybody ever has asked. It's quite extraordinary. And the comedy of the surprise ending totally gazumps the tragedy of the first 37 chapters. But we need to go back and look at the first 37 chapters to understand the ending. So three headings, a tragedy, a tragic response, and a comic vision. Firstly, a tragedy, chapters 1 and 2. Job was the richest man around. 
But in a single day, he lost everything. The Sabaeans ran off with his donkeys and oxen and murdered his hired hands. Lightning destroyed his flocks and his shepherds. The Chaldeans stole his camels and killed his camel drivers. And then a hurricane destroyed the house where his seven sons and three daughters were having a party and they were all killed. And what happened next was Job was afflicted with leprosy and after that he cursed the day he was born. He prayed to die but his heart kept beating. He prayed for the sun to go out but it kept shining. And his wife told him to curse God and go hang himself but he stopped just short of that. He was a good man and a man of faith so killing himself was not an option. And even though he was almost out of his head with the horror of it, he wouldn't stoop to that. To that. And that's the crux of the problem. Uh, the fact that he was a very good man and a very righteous man. Why had God let this happen to him? Well, secondly, a tragic response, chapters 3 to 37. Four well-meaning but insufferable friends came over to cheer Job up and to explain what happened to him. They said that anyone old enough to spell their own name knows that God is just and since God is just then God does bad things to bad people and good things to good people. They said that this being the case you don't have to have a university degree to work out that if you have had bad things happen to you Job then you must be bad. <laughs> but he hadn't he said and he says to them whoa you are awful and this is not true. Uh, actually, he says, galling comforters, are you all? Oh, that you would keep silent. And that would be your wisdom, Job 13, 4 to 5. In other words, Job's so-called friends were a bunch of theological clowns. And what they were saying was just super ignorant. And the smartest thing they could do was to be quiet and say nothing. But they were too busy explaining things to listen to Job. Eliphaz the Temanite proceeded to make a few helpful suggestions. He talked about some of the things that Job must have done but forgotten about. He must have robbed uh, some poor beggar, beggar of the clothes off his back without realising it. Or he must have dug his heel into the face of some widow or some orphan. Or He must have done something just terribly, terribly wrong. But Job didn't dignify these charges with an answer and talked about God instead. And Job's response to what happened was almost as tragic as his friends. His friends said, God is innocent, Job is guilty. Job said, Job is innocent, God is guilty. Neither said, both are innocent. And Job said, there had been a time when God's lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness when the Almighty was with me. And when my children were about me, Job 29, 3 and 5. And Job's question is, where is God now? He can't be found. I've looked behind, I've looked in front, I've looked to the side, I've looked to the other side. I can't find God anywhere. If I knew where he was, I would go and I would demand an answer. God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you and you do not answer me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me, Job 30, 19-21. It was the closest he'd come yet to taking his wife's advice and calling God a mongrel. 
My skin turns black and falls from me. Job 30 verse 30. And then Elihu, the youngest of the, of the friends, went over a few of the same points that the older guys had already talked about, then added the idea that the destruction of Job's property, the loss of all of his children and the leprosy were God's way of teaching Job to grow up, to learn sensitivity. He delivers the afflicted by their afflictions, Elihu explained, Job 36 verse 15. But Job had no chance to respond to this new and comforting insight because at that point another speaker turned up, God himself. <laughs> well, the comic vision, chapters 38 to 41, with God's speech, a fresh way of seeing things breaks in and courses through <laughs> and God addresses Job with the friends listening in. Job 38 verse 2, Who is this who obscures my plans by words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And at first it, it looks like, oh no, Job is in trouble. Maybe the friends were right. Maybe God is the friends writ large. But it turns out that God is actually delighted with Job and angry with the friends. We're told that in chapter 42 verse 7 at the end. So this is said with a wry smile and a twinkle in God's eye. It's very affectionate. Who is this who obscures my plans by words without knowledge? You know, it's quite playful. And God lists zoological and cosmological marvels to test God's, uh, Job's wisdom about creation. 38 verse 4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? <laughs> and I imagine God's eyebrows working overtime as he kind of says, Job, what do you know about the binding of the sea? You know, uh, the depths of the netherworld, the abodes of light and darkness, the storehouses of snow and hail, the mystery of storms, the control of constellations. What do you know, Job? Answer, not much. <laughs> but it's warm and witty. And God's questions focus on the wondrous vitality of creation. And there's a playful, festive tone. God presents this carnival of creation. And the descriptions evoke joy and laughter. Verse 7, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And God goes on to describe all these animals, the freedom of the wild donkey, the awesome strength of the, of the buffalo, the majestic power of the horse, the grandeur of flight of the hawk and eagle, the ludicrous stupidity of the ostrich, but she's a superb runner, the might of Leviathan. There's this whole carnival of animals and God has given these creatures the ability to laugh the donkey laughs at the commotion in the town. Chapter 39, verse 5. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a, hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. The ostrich laughs 
at horse and rider, 39.17. God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. The horse laughs at fear, 39 verse 19. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It pours fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The beasts of the steppes laugh or play even in the presence of Behemoth, the hippo, chapter 40, verse 20. The Leviathan or crocodile laughs fearlessly at the javelin's whir, 41.23. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw, the bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it, but a piece of straw, it laughs at the rattling of the lance. The animals are playing and laughing and unafraid. And God's speech has this element of playfulness, of exuberant laughter. And Job and we the readers are caught off guard by this. Who would have thought that God would respond to Job in this way? God's song of creation is a carnival of morning stars and animals. And there are four surprising and refreshing features to this comic vision. Firstly, it's questions only. The whole speech is just questions to show Job how little he knows or controls. Also, it's saying there's no real answer to Job's suffering, at least not yet anyway. No answer that will make sense of innocent suffering. God doesn't give any answer. He just asks questions. And the point is God moves on, on a level be, beyond human comprehension. And this is part of the comic vision. And, and this is, there's a refreshingness about that, that we can't know everything yet. Secondly, it's amazing. God uses all these questions to convey his wisdom in the creation and the wonder of it. All this vitality and drop-dead gorgeous beauty in the creation. And Job says, all of this is too wonderful, wonderful for me. Chapter 42, verse 3. And Job and, his, Job and his friends are left speechless. This is part of the humour. After some 20 speeches most of which are bombastic and long-winded. After all the speeches, they now say nothing. They now fall silent before the majesty of God, his wisdom, his beauty. Job has no more questions. After vowing that he would not be silent, that he would question God and demand answers, Job has nothing to say, even though God hasn't answered a single thing. Thirdly, it's amusing. This is important because the most profound closeness with another comes through playfulness. Uh, First Nations people in Canada refer to lovemaking as laughing together. 
Only when there is playfulness, laughter and good humour can there be true intimacy. This is important. The couple that plays together stays together. And freedom with one another does not come through taking ourselves or others too seriously. We must take and be taken playfully, laughingly, humorously. The most profound closeness with one another involves playfulness. And Job is not given answers. He's given intimacy, closeness uh, through playfulness. God God doesn't give Job answers. He gives Job himself, his playful self, his joyful self. Um, It's just amazing. Fourthly, it's Eden revisited. This carnival of morning stars and animals reminds us of the creation before the fall and the Garden of Eden. And it's like the Song of Songs, which is the next book after the book of Job. The Song of Songs is this duet between two lovers who delight in the wonders of wild gazelles, turtle doves, foxes, lions and leopards and so on, and lush gardens. And as they joyously and playfully participate in the springtime of new love. And again, this very dominant theme of humour and playfulness in the Song of Songs creates so much intimacy. And really, it's a picture of Eden revisited, (laughs) the Song of Songs. And likewise, Job 38 to 41 harkens back to Eden and points forward to the new Eden to come, the new creation, when God's exuberant joy And playful presence will once again fill all things. And God is inviting Job into his joy. And it's such a surprise. Who would have thought? How could Job have possibly foreseen that bored to death by his comforters and scratching his boils and putting his head in his hands so that he doesn't have to face the empty chairs of his children, Who would have possibly predicted that his bloodshot eyes would look up and behold the one who laid the foundations of the earth and at whose command uh, the, the, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Who would have thought? And even across all the centuries, we... We can't miss the impact of the playfulness of God's presence in Job 38 to 41. This is the comic vision, if I can call it that. This vision of God's exuberant presence in creation. And it relativizes Job's suffering and silences his questions and he's satisfied. I'd heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Chapter 41, verse 5. And this vision of God totally eclipses Job's pain and it shows up the tragic blindness of Job's friends and Job himself. And Job can laugh at his accusers and know that God is laughing with him. And Job can laugh at himself for thinking that he knew something when really he knows very little. And Job can laugh at life because it doesn't often make sense, (laughs) but that's okay. And then Job repents and is restored. He's given new children, beautiful, um, bountiful flocks and beautiful daughters, we're told. 
and Job dies old and satisfied. So in conclusion, often Genesis and Job are understood in a tragic mode, but they're actually comedies. And the comic vision they give is in the context of tragedy. And there is a relationship between tragedy and comedy. Roy Eckhart in Comedy and Tragedy in a Post-Holocaust World says, humour requires tears and tears require humour. And it may be that it's not until our hearts break that we can really learn to laugh. And when God writes a book on tragedy, namely the Bible, it's very funny. <laughs> and tragedy is transformed into comedy again and again on the Bible's pages. And finally, into this comic vision. A vision that is in the end a vision of God, of his joy, of his playful presence in the creation, which is really a vision of the new Eden to come, which is the only answer to all our suffering. I think Job is a parable of the tragedy of all our lives and the hope for the appearance of the joy of God at the end, which will totally eclipse our pain. The comic vision comes in the context of suffering and it speaks to our suffering. And it says to quote Jesus in Luke 6.21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This means not just that we'll laugh at the end, but that we can laugh a little even now in the midst of our weeping, because we know that the end is coming. The Apostle Paul says the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the joy that is to come. And donkeys, ostriches, hippos, cockatoos, giraffes are a window into that joy. This is the comic vision. And we can already laugh because the new Eden, in a sense, has already begun with the coming of Jesus, born among the animals in a stable, Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation itself is a kind of vast joke where the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in nappies. And Jesus takes on our tragedy, even to the point of death, even death, on the cross and then has the last laugh over it through his resurrection when God's comedy magnificently totally wonderfully triumphs over our tragedy and as resurrection people we're invited to live a, a life of lightness and playfulness as we look for the hope of our resurrection from the dead to come. Embracing a playfulness. It's so important for our intimacy that we learn a playfulness and a lightness. Playfulness makes our friends and our enemies feel at ease and safe with us. Playfulness opens a whole new door onto relationship, onto peace, onto closeness and intimacy. Playfulness spawns new ways of living together. It's amazing. And playfulness makes all the things that seem to threaten or limit us seem like nothing compared to the beautiful vision that we're given here of God and the new Eden to come. Let's be a playful, light-hearted people I know my own experience, my own grandfather was such a person 
full of playfulness, full of silliness at times. And I've tried to model my life on him to keep positive, to keep as funny as I can be anyway, uh, keep that lightness of touch with people and with myself and with life. And I urge all of us to be pursuing this uh, because life is a bittersweet comedy, not a terrifying tragedy. Amen.